seated. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And for many weeks, and a couple of months even, we've been exploring the book of Ephesians, and we've come now to what is one of the more difficult passages of Scripture that anyone would ever be asked to listen to and to respond to. And as we think about the challenges that God's Word brings to our hearts and to our lives, we are reminded that God's Word is eternal, that it is holy, that it is authoritative, that it is without error. It is not cultural, it is timeless. And as we think about who we are in Christ and the reality that we have been changed by this work of grace, and that we are to be continually casting aside our old way, our old thoughts, our old patterns, our old behaviors, and instead putting on the new person in Christ. We come to the subject here today that we'll read about as we look at an extension, a continuation of what we have talked about over these many, many weeks about not only walking in holiness, but about walking in light, about walking in love. And now we come to a passage where we are challenged to walk in subjection. Probably the most difficult passage that any woman would ever be asked to respond to. And on the heels of that, one of the more challenging passages of Scripture any man would be asked to observe is the challenge to love his wife as Christ loved the church. As we come to this topic of marriage and family, I'm reminded of this that many, in fact, most aspire to it. And in reality, it takes absolutely no special skill, no training. Anybody can just go get married. But as Christians, we must recognize that God has ordained marriage for very specific purposes that we are often not aware of. It's interesting, we came, I came across this uh, some time ago in this exploration of marriage and asking some children about marriage. And so they were asked, how do you decide who to marry? A young boy by the name of Alan, who was about 10, said, you've got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like the sports, and she should keep the chips and the dip coming. <laughs> well, that's how long we've been on this journey, doesn't it? <laughs> Kirsten, who is also 10, says, no, real, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> Don't nudge your spouse too hard. What is the right age to get married? Well, Camille says 23 is the best age because you know the person forever by then. And then Freddie says no age is good to get married. you got to be a fool to get married. <laughs> How can a stranger tell if two people are married? Well, Derek, who's eight, says you might have to guess based upon whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> What do you think your mom and dad have in common? And Lori says, well, neither one of them want any more kids. <laughs> Is it better to be single or married? Anita says, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> and then Ricky, who is 10, was asked, how would you make a marriage work? And he says, tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> Well, God has a design for marriage, and he has intended that marriage be the cornerstone of our culture. 
If you think about the culture that we live in, if you think about the cultures that have been established over the centuries, many have adopted some form of God-inspired law or system. And so it's no different when we come to the idea of marriage, and we would be fools to not acknowledge that marriage in our culture, especially here in America, is under attack. It's been under attack for decades. There was some time in the 60s, I think, that no-fault divorce was passed, meaning you could divorce your spouse for virtually any reason that you deemed, that you deemed important. It didn't used to be that way. In more common or in more recent time, we can see how marriage has been under attack with the, uh, the proliferation of the homosexual agenda. Marriage is being redefined. The family is being redefined. And we need to understand what God says about marriage and how it fits into our culture and where we need to resist what we're getting fed by our culture and to stand upon the truth of God's word. You know, I was appalled some years ago when one national network aired a show called Sister Wives. And it chronicled the life of a man who was married to four different women, one legally and three spiritually. And it chronicled their relationship and their challenges and their mutual love and their adoration and all that kind of stuff. Well, it doesn't take any dummy to figure out that over a certain period of time, that's just not going to last. It's not going to work. And in most recent days, there's been all kinds of turmoil within that group of people who have identified themselves as being married. Now, as we look at this challenge in walking in subjection, part one, we need to be mindful of a couple of verses that we've already looked at. The first verse that we need to be reminded of is the last part of verse 18, where we read last week, be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be filled by, controlled by, or directly influenced by anything in your life other than the Holy Spirit. Why? Because being dominated by, being controlled by anything other than God himself is going to lead us down a path that eventually is not going to honor, nor will it please God. So we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making a melody or having joy in our heart with the Lord. And then we read this verse, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So the reality is, is that all of us are subject to someone. All of us. We all have some level of authority that we are going to have to fall under. And Paul begins to, or continues to explain that idea as we look more specifically now at the relationships that are called into this model of subjection. So here's our passage. I want to pick up with 21 and then read through 24. And here's what the Word of God says. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And I have talked to Christian women who love God and follow God, who get shivers down their spine when they read these verses because it's so difficult to follow. You know, there's a lot of scripture that is complicated and takes great study. There are some passages, scriptures, that are very matter-of-fact, that are incredibly difficult to live. And I believe that this is one such passage of scripture. So we're going to look at, first of all, the matter of subjection. The matter of subjection is very simply this. Wives, be subject to your own husband. So this matter of subjection is wives are to be subject to their husband. So every Christian wife, regardless of social standing, 
education, intelligence, spiritual maturity, age, experience, or any other consideration is commanded to be subject to their husbands. The word subject means to relinquish one's rights. It's actually a military term, and what it means is to arrange under or to rank under. If you think about a military term, you think about a military hierarchy, everybody has somebody that they report to. Isn't that right? Even the colonel has to operate under the authority of the president. The president operates under the authority of the people who elect him. That could be a challenge in how that gets executed. But remember here, we're talking about a spiritual authority, not a civil authority. And so wives are to relinquish their own rights to their husbands. It is a voluntary response to God's will in giving up one's independent rights, not only to other believers in general, as we've looked at over many, many weeks, but to also to ordained authority and then also to one's husband. So let me do this before we get any further in this. Subjection does not mean to obey like children obey. You are not to function in this subjective relationship as a child would to a parent. It doesn't mean that as a husband you treat your child, treat your wife as a servant or as a little child, but is an equal for whom God has given to you for the purpose of providing care and responsibility, for providing, for protecting, and all of this is to be exercised in love. It also does not mean to simply take orders from. The wife is not to fulfill every whim or every desire of the husband. The husband is to love and provide and to serve his wife and his family, and he is not to hold that position over them in a way that is demeaning or is authoritarian. Thirdly, it does not mean that the wife is subject to all men. This special relationship of husband and wife calls for the wife to be subject to their husband, but not subject to every man. Now, there's other authority that women would have to be subject to in the life of a church. There's all authority that we are subjected to. But again, we're talking here about spiritual Authority. So here's some things that we need to keep in mind as we exercise through this process of understanding what this means. When a man and a woman get married, they become a mutual possession of one another. She belongs to the husband, he belongs to the wife. There is this mutual possession that exists, and out of that comes a mutual form of subjection. We'll look at that for the, for the, for the husband in two weeks. We'll do Easter next week. So God declares that the two have become one flesh. Isn't that right? These two individuals who have been joined together in the sight of God, believing God has brought them together, have been made one flesh. They belong to each other in absolute equality. It's important to understand that. They are together in absolute authority. So where does subjection fall in, fall in place in this? Well, subjection is to the role and the authority that God has given to the husband. So scripture makes it clear that there are no spiritual or moral distinctions among Christians. And I think this is a lot of what has been mistaught and misapplied in marriage relationships. Just because there is a distinction in role or authority does not mean superior and inferior. 
It simply designates a difference in the role that is to be played. So we see this truth that there is no spiritual or moral moral distinctions among Christians. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. No distinction, no difference. doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, how old you are, how rich you are, how poor you are. None of that matters. We stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. There are no classifications of Christians. Every believer in Jesus Christ enjoys the same salvation, the same righteous standing before God, the same newly created divine nature, and the same divine promises and inheritance. There's no distinction. But in matters of role and function, God has made a distinction. We see this truth expressed when we examine spiritual gifts. Now, this might feel like a bit of a jump as we talk about this, but the point I want to make here is the role and the distinction. So as we look at spiritual gifts, it's a very lengthy passage, and I actually didn't include all of it or other passages. But when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul's treatise, if you will, on spiritual gifts. So he says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So Paul is reaffirming here, as he has in other parts of the Bible, that there's level footing at the cross. There's no distinction based upon male, female, Jew, Greek, or any other external consideration. So he goes on to say that for the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the sense of smell? Where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. So as we look at this idea of spiritual gifts, we recognize that God has gifted every believer, but he has gifted every believer differently. There is going to be a different role. There will come with that role a different exercise of authority, but that does not mean that there is superior and inferior. perfect example is that I have been called to be the pastor, an elder in the church, but I'm no better than any of you. I just have a different role. I have a different function within the body of Christ in this local body of believers. Because of that role that I have, there's a different level of authority that I carry. That authority is not unilateral. That authority is not, does not, it's not exercised apart from the other elders or the considerations of the congregation. It's simply a different role that comes with a different amount of authority. So role and function and the subsequent authority have no impact on the intrinsic worth or the basic spiritual privilege and rights that God has given to his people. As with spiritual gifts, the distinctions of headship and submission are entirely functional and were ordained by God. So God has given rulers in government, and there's a certain authority that they have over the people, right? So to church leaders, he has also delegated a certain amount of authority over the congregation. To husbands, he has given authority over the wives. To parents, he has given authority over the children. To employers, he's given authority over employees. So the issue of subjection is an issue of role and authority, not worth and ability. As I think about that reality, 
although it is still incredibly challenging for us to process, and how that actually gets fleshed out in our lives, it ought to eliminate those negative feelings associated with being asked to subject to the authority that God has created for us to operate under. When we meet as elders, we pray and we discuss and we cast vision and we make decisions, but we do that equally. We do that with a sense of unity, with an idea that if the whole group's not on board with this, then there's something that we haven't figured out yet or we're not ready yet. But that's one of the examples as we think about the roles that God has given and the fact that there isn't a statement being made about superiority and inferiority. It's simply a distinction that God has made. So the distinction of role and authority was distorted as a result of the fall. When you look at what's wrong with our world, when you look at what's wrong in our country, when you look at what's wrong in our relationships, you can always go back to the starting point, and that is the fall. When Eve was tempted and took of the fruit and shared that, and Adam took of it willingly, a curse was passed upon all of mankind. We read in Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, not only will there be great pain in childbirth, but your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That word desire here means to control. And so as a result of the curse of the fall, the wife's intrinsic desire now, part of who she is because of a sinful nature, her desire is to control her husband. We see that word used in the next chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 4, when we have this encounter with Cain and Abel, and God says to, to Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is to control us. And as a result of the curse of the fall, the natural desire of a wife is to control her husband. Sin's desire is to control us. The wife's desire is to control her husband. But what was the other part of the curse? And he will rule over you. That's more than just a statement of hierarchy or authority. It communicates that he is going to dominate you. And it carries with it the idea of subjecting someone to the point where they are now under your foot. And that's not at all what God had intended prior to the fall. So this domination is an authoritative control. It's a dictator mentality. You are here for me. You will do what I say. You will go where I go. You won't do what I want. That's not what God has designed, but that is what takes place as a, as a result of the curse of the fall. So the distortion of a woman's proper submission and of a man's proper authority exercised in love is the result of the fall. In the fall, you have the origin of male chauvinism and women's liberation. It all starts right here. So wives have a sinful inclination to usurp the husband's authority, and husbands have a sinful inclination to put wives under their feet however they have to do that. So I want to read this because I want to say this exactly as it was written, as I borrowed this from an author. The divine decree that man would rule over woman in this way 
was a part of God's curse on humanity, and it takes a work of grace in Christ by the filling of the Holy Spirit to restore the created order and harmony of proper submission in a relationship that has become corrupted and disordered by sin. That's what the work of grace is designed to do. It is designed to fix what was broke as a result of the fall. It empowers us to resist those sinful inclinations that we have and to submit those to the authority of Christ as we allow our spiritual lives to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So being controlled by God, being filled with the Spirit, restores relationships to their proper biblical perspectives. Wives lovingly submitting, husbands lovingly leading with great care and great respect. I think the great example that we see in this relationship is prior to the fall in Genesis chapter 2. And it says, The Lord God fashioned to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I can promise you that after Adam had named all of the creatures and saw that he was without a partner, and God brought to him this part, he didn't say, Now I've got somebody that I can dominate. Not what he said. This is my partner. Look what God has given to me. I'm going to value this, and I'm going to cherish this, and I am going to love this, and I'm going to honor this, and I am going to give myself to this thing that God has given to me. I've heard this said over and over and over. Eve was created from Adam's rib, not his head to rule over him or his foot to be walked upon, but from his side to be a companion. So we have this Matter of subjection. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let's look at the manner of subjection. Number two, we see in verse 22, as to the Lord. So wives are to submit to their husbands as they submit to the Lord. Now, the red flags go up, the bells start ringing when, when you hear this. And so there's a couple things that we want to clarify as we talk about it. So subjection, as to the Lord, does not mean... That the husband becomes the God. Husbands are not the gods. Guys, you are not the God of your wife. It's easy to forget that because of the function that God has given to us. But this subjection asked to the Lord doesn't mean that the husbands are like gods to their wives. Number two, it doesn't mean that wives are to disobey God's standards. God never asks us to follow Him and obey Him and in the process violate His commands. In the same way, husbands are not to violate the care and the trust that they have been given and being a loving leader for their wife. You look at an example of this in the book of Esther. When King Azaharis asked his wife Vashti to come and to present herself to this group of drunken men to be gawked at to be reveled at, and she, she refused. So, subjecting as Lord doesn't mean that you are to disobey God's commands. Number three, it doesn't mean that you endure criminal behavior. Any wife who is subjected to any kind of criminal behavior needs to leave the home 
until the husband will confess and repent of that sin. And until it's safe, the woman should not go home. No woman should ever be expected to sit and absorb what we would consider criminal behavior. God is the prototypical father, is he not? God would never harm or mistreat his children. He disciplines us in love for our own good. But he never harms us or mistreats us. And so we are not to harm or mistreat our wives. Some wives are willing to subject themselves to their husbands if they feel that the husband is deserving of that submission. If they feel adequately loved for and cared for and provided for, then they will willingly submit. But there isn't a condition placed upon this command. Neither is there a condition placed on the husband's responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. This relationship of mutual subjection is never going to be dependent upon the other person's performance, but rather on simple obedience to God. Now let me ask you a very practical question. Does that make it any easier? No, it doesn't. It's hard to subject yourself to any authority, but it's especially difficult when that authority isn't deemed to be worthy of that subjection. And so this is why it's important that we understand the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives and what that Spirit enables us and empowers us to do in these relationships. Husbands are to sacrificially love their wives, not based upon the wife's submission, but as God has commanded him to love. Our husbands sometimes thoughtless, ungrateful, inconsiderate, juvenile, Temperamental, demanding. I can't believe no, I can't believe not a single woman said amen or nod on their head or something. <laughs> I couldn't hear that, but that's okay. We'll wait for the discussion time later. <laughs> so while it would seem like it makes sense to be excused from subjection under those issues and challenges, it still is not. Obedience to God's command. Your submission to the Lord is expressed in your submission to your husband. So, it may not seem right. It may not seem beneficial. It certainly isn't easy. But we must remember that God always honors our obedience. That God always blesses faithfulness, regardless of how difficult it is. And regardless of the circumstances in which we are obedient. So wives are to subject themselves to their husbands as to the Lord. Let's look at number three at the motive of subjection. The motive of the subjection is found in the first part of verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So what this is saying, the motive of subjection is very simply that God has designed for the husband to be the leader. He is the head of the wife. Now, there's a lot of difficulty in understanding what that means. And again, it communicates superiority and inferiority, and that's not at all what the intent of this meaning is. As we look at the way this word head is used in the book of Ephesians, we go all the way back to verse 1, or chapter 1 rather, in verse 22, and it says, And he, God, put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet, 
and gave him Christ as head over all things to the church. And so you see the, the usage of the word head here, meaning that Christ rules over and has authority over all of the universe. In Ephesians 4, in verse 15, we read, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And so Christ rules over us, his people. He cares for us and he nourishes us because we are a part of his body. In both of these uses, Christ is depicted as the functional head over the church. And so in the family, the husband is depicted as the head of the wife. And verse goes on to say that he himself being the savior of the body. Now that's a very unique phrase. And let me tell you, the context doesn't really have as much to do with the the husband-wife relationship as much as it is just a simple reference to the work of Christ and that we should not assume that this means that the husband is the savior of his wife. That is absolutely not an appropriate application or interpretation of this scripture. It is simply stating as the way Christ is head over the church, he himself being the savior of the body. That is the way we are to recognize his headship, not only in the church, but also within our marriage relationships. So this verse shows the kind of love and care and leadership that Christ has for his body. And it expresses an example of why wives are to submit to their husbands. As Christ is the functional head of the church, the husband is the functional head of the wife and of the family. And I can hear many say, well, you know, my head is dysfunctional. Well, you're right. You're right. We all have some level of dysfunctionality in us because we are all affected by the presence of sin. We are all still a work in progress and some have allowed the power of sin to exist in their lives in such a way that not only is there a distortion because of the influence, there's a distortion of this relationship, this role, because we have embraced sin as opposed to confessing and repenting of it. So God is aware of the dysfunctionality that exists within every head, and it is his responsibility to deal with it. So what is a wife to do? Well, a wife is to pray. A wife is to show a godly example, as Peter would say, that you are to submit in love without a word, knowing that your holiness, your obedience, is an example. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's what Scripture says. So the husband being named, being named as the head indicates that he is the one who gives direction. He is to be the leader. Every organization has a leader. It doesn't designate superiority, ability, value, or worth. It's simply a designation of role and function. I remember hearing this at a conference that we were attending, and we were dealing with family issues, and the guy who led this talked about his relationship with his wife, and he expressed it like this, and the way this leadership is to be exercised. He said when they talked about decisions that need to be made, they would say, we either have a red light, a yellow light, or a green light. So if either party in the discussion had a red light, it means they needed to stop and wait because it wasn't time to do whatever was going to be done. If one of them had a yellow light, it means that it's in the ballpark, it's just not quite right timing, so we're going to postpone that until it is right. Green light means you go. 
So there are going to be times in a relationship where someone is going to have to make that decision, even if there isn't complete agreement. But the process of being one in Christ, of being companions and fellow heirs of the grace of God, there is this conversation that has to exist. This function of leadership does not exist in a vacuum, guys. It exists in a role that has been given to you by God with incredible amounts of responsibility and accountability. We will be held accountable for the way we have led. As wives will be held accountable for the way that they have submitted. So the role of the wife as a companion and a helpmate is to subject herself to her husband as to the Lord because God has declared the husband to be the head. Number four, the model of subjection. Verse 24, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So the model of subjection is as the church subjects. As we talk about our responsibility as a New Testament church, who believes in the authority of Scripture and the sovereignty of God, we understand without any discussion it is our responsibility as best we can to follow the leadership of Christ. Isn't that right? What happens when a church, a local body of believers, decides that there aren't that they aren't going to follow the leadership of Christ? Well, they'll go straight, won't they? Sometimes they're not aware that they are not following the And so it is the same way in the marriage relationship. There is this relationship, this role, this authority that God has established. And as difficult as it is, it doesn't change the fact that it has been ordained. So as we, the church, submit to the one, the God, who is most loving and most gracious and most generous, wives are submit to their husbands, and we'll look next time at the way husbands subject themselves to the wives by loving as Christ loved the church. So this has a lot to say about the kind of leader that the husband is expected to be as it says about how the wife is to submit. This emphasizes the truth that husbands and the wife are made to be one flesh and as a husband would prioritize himself, his preferences and his desires, he should prioritize his wife. The unfortunate reality is that our marriages take place under the oppressive influence of sin and selfishness. And it leads to insensitive, uncaring, selfish husbands who are guilty of enforcing standards or expectations that are sinful and filled with self-interest. What is a wife to do? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Allow the sufficiency of Christ to be sufficient for you. A husband should never force his wife to do anything that harms her, belittles her, or tramples over her, or demeans her, just as Christ would never do that to his church. There should be no physical harm. There should be no psychological manipulation. There should be no demeaning requests. When this is true in a marriage relationship, then outside help is necessary. And as we need help, where do we go? Well, we go to the Lord of God. We go to other Christians that we respect and trust who can give wise counsel. The response in that 
outside help is always confession, repentance, and restoration. You Christians are admonished to confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed spiritually. This relational challenge, this role and authority that has been established by God, I think deepens our understanding of how important it is that we have people in our lives who will ask the difficult questions, who will hold us accountable, and who will, be, who will challenge us to be faithful to the truth of God's word. So this call for wives to be subject to their husbands doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a greater conversation of mutual subjection one to another. And in two weeks we'll look at the continuation of this as we look at the role of husbands to wives. As you think about how difficult it is to follow the Lord, to obey the Lord,